0: Father, thank you for the blessing in this body. Thank you for the way in which you have multiplied us in a short time. Provided us a fantastic place to meet, Father. More than we could have imagined. Thank you for the men and women who come. From all over, it seems. Who want to hear your word. Who know, Father, that it is the bread of life. That we don't live by earthly bread alone and father i thank you that you have given me the privilege that it is to teach and though i do it imperfectly i do it in the the power of a man which is to say no power at all by the miracle that you do father you turn it into something useful in the ears of those who hear it and that is the expectation we have as we go to your word father that there would be something transformative spoken to us from you and though we don't hear your voice directly, and though, Father, we seek the truth imperfectly, nonetheless, Father, we believe that you have the power to make known what we should know tonight. And we will know it according to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we studied what I proposed to be Christ's most powerful lesson on the nature of ministry during the Time of the Kingdom program. That was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. I hope you were here for that. If you didn't, and I don't normally say this, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one. I think last week's was worth listening to if you haven't heard it. And in that teaching, Jesus miraculously feeds those 5,000 men, plus women, plus children. And He does it through the hands of the disciples while they're all on this mountainside in the middle of nowhere. And by the way that He did it, last week I told you He was teaching the disciples a number of lessons about serving God about being prepared to serve people in need and not to hold their needs against them when they came seeking something. And that as you do serve, you have to do it in the supply that Christ provides. You have to keep going back to Him. Remember that vivid picture we looked at last week? Jesus standing up on the mountainside, the crowd below, and the connection between the two were those 12 men who had to keep going up and down and up and down to deliver the food that fed those 5,000. And so they're, they're showing, or Jesus showed them, that this spiritual supply that He provides has to go through their hands to the people, but it's not like they can work independently of Him. They had to keep going back to get more. And this goes on for a while. And in the course of that, He shows them that the miracles that will be done through the work of the servants of the church are miracles that do not overshadow their labors, because no one saw the miracle. No one watched the fish magically appear. All the people saw was human beings delivering food. All the disciples saw was Jesus throw a few fish and loaves in each basket every time they showed up. And that's the nature of ministry so often. Ordinary labor is going to be the thing you typically see. Only when you stand back and you look at the cumulative effect of God working through people in the church, only then are the miracles going to be evident. The accomplishments will be beyond what you can imagine. Certainly beyond what you yourself can claim to have designed to have planned, to have worked. That's how God will work. So in the end, as the disciples received their own rations back from the leftovers of the people, in the end what we saw was that the work got done, everything came from Christ, and everybody blessed somebody else through their hands. That's ministry. That's the opening lesson. That's the foundation lesson that Jesus teaches these men on what it means to minister during the age of the kingdom program. That's what we started with. Now, as you look back on that lesson, and I just summarized it very briefly, of course, but as you remember what we taught last week, I'm sure that those disciples understood and internalized that lesson. Right? I mean, it was so powerful. How couldn't you have picked up on all of that, right? That's my buzzer sound. Not so fast, because as you're going to see in today's passage in Matthew, they actually missed it. They didn't just miss it. They missed it hard. And they didn't just fail to understand it. As you're going to find out today, they came to resent it. And that's why we get what we get today. Verse 22 is where we go. Chapter 14, verse 22. We pick up there. Look what happens next. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When it was evening, he was there alone. All right, well, that sets the scene. Let's do a little bit of recap and scene setting ourselves. As this miracle ends, Christ tells his disciples get back in that boat that they came over with in the first place, cross back against uh, the opposite direction on the Sea of Galilee, go back to Capernaum. We know they go to Capernaum from other Gospels. And as I explained to you last time, the, the miracle of 5,000 goes on in a place that's relatively uninhabited. You know, there's, there's nothing right there, there's no town. There's nothing nearby. It's an uninhabited north cor- northeast corner of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. It was near a little fishing village called Bethsaida, but there's nothing there. And I also told you last week, the Scriptures told us last week, this thing happened right before nightfall. That was the whole impetus, remember? That was the reason why the disciples even told Jesus, send these people away. Well, because night was coming, people were hungry, and they didn't want to be responsible for that crowd, remember? All right, well now they fed them. That took some time. And night has come. And at this point, Matthew tells us that Jesus instructs His disciples, Get in the boat without me, go back to Capernaum. Now that's a little strange. And it's strange because, generally speaking, people didn't travel at night in this day and age. And traveling across the Galilee at night was never the norm. I mean, fishermen would go out at night, but they had a purpose. They went out. They didn't go very far off the shore, for that matter. And they were you know just out for their daily or evening work. They didn't go across the lake. So... This this is an odd request. And then you have on top of that the fact that Jesus doesn't go with them. He just sends them off by by themselves in the only boat that they had. Once more, we've got to go to the other Gospels here. Remember I told you last week that the other Gospels are really helpful in studying this particular section. And to understand what Jesus is doing here, we have to look around. First, let's go to John's account. I'm going to read you a piece from what John writes about this moment, John 6, 14. John says, When the people saw the sign which he had performed, that's referencing the feeding of the 5,000. It says, When the people saw that sign, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. After getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So John tells us that at some point in the middle of that feeding process, the crowd realize that a miracle is taking place in their midst. And here's what I think happened. I don't think they know that Jesus started with you know, two and five fish and loaves. I don't think they knew that right away. But you, look, you don't have to be a genius to, to notice you've got thousands of people being fed by a man up on a hillside who does not happen to have a warehouse full of food right next to him. So there's something happening to make all this food, and they start to get the picture. So first it's a murmur, and then by the time the thing is over, you've got thousands of people who are uh, deciding that they just saw something that needed action. They decide that Jesus is the promised prophet that John refers to here. That's the, the prophet that Moses said in Deuteronomy, that one day God would send Israel. And that's a prophecy of the Messiah. So the people are kind of picking up on this. This must be the Messiah. Now, as we learned last week, this whole moment that Jesus is orchestrated, orchestrated on the side of the hill, this was supposed to be a reenactment of Exodus, at least to an extent. Only now Jesus is playing the part of Charlton Heston. And at this point, as they see this thing play out, they're starting to put two and two together. We crossed a body of water. We, he went up a mountainside. He's now bringing down manna from heaven, you know, miraculous bread. Wait a minute. Moses said there'd be another guy just like him. This is the guy. They got the point. Only when they recognize the picture, they go the wrong direction. They go for revolution. They decide that this guy, will Jesus, is going to free them from Roman tyranny in the same way that Moses freed Israel from Egyptian slavery. They got the wrong point. Right guy, wrong point. And so John says they're ready to pick him up on their shoulders and run into Jerusalem with him and by force get him to sit on the seat of David and take control as king of Israel. Well, we know that Jesus' time to be king is over, remember? That would happen in chapter 12. No longer is the kingdom offer on the table. So there's not going to be any kingdom in their day. Not in the literal sense. And so Jesus can't have them do this. And John says Jesus perceived it retreated from it and in that way he prevented it back to Matthew Matthew says in verse 22 that Jesus sends the crowds away as he goes up to pray now we know why because this was getting out of hand and he says you've had your food now go but that's back to a question now so Jesus had already planned to send the crowds away that's how he deals with this issue of their rebellious hearts why does he send the disciples also why do they have to leave And why send them at night? And why send them alone? And why send them in his only boat? Doesn't he know that it's not good to go out on the water after you've had a a, a meal, your stomach is full? This is all bad. Very bad. And then the mystery deepens even further when we look at a map of the scene. Let's go to our first map tonight. You saw this one last week. Capernaum is located only a short distance from Bethsaida. As the crow flies... And it's just directly across the tip of the lake there. You don't have really very far to go. When you look at a map, you'll remember why I said last week that the crowds that were following him to this place when he went from west to east to get to Bethsaida, remember the crowds appear almost at the same time that Jesus does. He goes on a boat, they walk, and everybody gets there about the same time. Now you can see why, right? They weren't that far away. It was pretty easy to do that. In fact... Those two locations are so close together that you almost have to skirt the shore if you're going to go straight between them. I mean, you're you're practically against the shore the whole time. You're not going out very far at all. In fact, let me show you another map. This is a picture I took sitting on the top of Mount Arbel in Israel. And you can see, I've drawn on it, the relative locations of where Capernaum and Bethesda are. And you can see they're just kind of... You know, if you go right from one to the other, you're barely in the water at all. Uh, And and this guy down here in the corner, that's not Jesus. Next slide. That's Derek. Are you here, Derek? There's Derek, right there. Okay. Let me show you one more picture that will really show it to you. Let me show you this. That is the line they took. They're not very far at all. Now, seeing that, you start to question, why did he take a boat in the first place? It's practically pointless to get in the water in the traveling that he did that one way or the other. Well, the answer is obvious why he sailed. Because we know that he was choosing to travel by water in the first place because of the lesson that he wanted to teach them in connection with the Exodus. Putting himself on water is the first clue that starts to draw the connection to the Exodus account. Crossing water to go to a Gentile area in which it's remote and the people need food and the you know so on and so forth. If you don't know the Exodus story, you should read it. Or watch the movie. In any event, we know that's why he went over. And now he sent his disciples back by way of water. But here again, alone and at night. And I'm here to tell you that once again, the travel here is not the point. There's a lesson they need to learn. And it's going to be best learned by putting them in these circumstances. And to understand what I mean, you need to remember the lesson from last week a little more. Back in verse 15 when we studied this, Jesus told the disciples that they were to feed the hungry crowds. The crowds were not a problem to be sent away. They were the purpose of ministry. And I said then that the disciples' thinking was truly upside down. They had a Pharisaic perspective on ministry. They thought ministry was a position of honor. And look, this shouldn't sound all that new to you because there's still a lot of guys walking around doing my job in this way, thinking that it's about honor for them and that everyone else is supposed to sort of you know, make them feel good and honor them and that's how they started in their role they expected to have a place above the people and they perceived the people then to be a burden you know they're kind of the necessary evil you need them but let's be honest we really don't like to mess with them those in ministry today have a little saying sometimes jokingly we say the church would be a lot easier if it weren't for all the people and we mean it sarcastically we don't actually mean it they actually meant it all right Paul, we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians, Paul taught us that we are called as a church community to bestow honor, greater honor, on those who are the spiritually weaker among us because instead of resenting those who come to us with need, we should honor them by that service, by that spiritual service. Because Paul told us their weaknesses, whatever they are, whatever things people need among us, those give purpose to our spiritual gifts. As a teacher, I don't don't get to teach if you know it all. If if I've got a gift to pray, I don't get to use that if you're not in need of prayer. You see how that works? Those who have a weakness and come to us in burden give opportunity for us to minister, and that's the whole point. That was the lesson he wanted these men to learn. And he taught it to them through this very powerful picture of a crowd in need that they had to serve as waiters, delivering food. This is the point. Look, if you don't get this point, nothing else you learn about serving Christ will matter because you'll go at it with the wrong heart. and. Doing things the right way in the wrong heart is pointless. Because he doesn't need your work. He doesn't need your help. He wants to change your heart. So ministry is not some reality TV show that you win by popularity. That's not how I get it uh, in this job. That's not what I'm trying to do. Ministers are not rock stars. Even though some pretend they are. They are not primping and posing on stage to impress you and to receive your ovation at the end of it all. You know, we're not supposed to roll up here in luxury cars and ride our private elevator up to our penthouse suite while you kiss our ring. If that's someone's attitude about being in ministry, they're the last person you want in ministry. They're certainly the last person you want as your shepherd. God help you if that's the man that's responsible for your spiritual development. That is lording over people, Christ says. And when God's people forget this truth, what takes place next is your flesh takes control, and then your pride kicks in, and you just ruin ministry. You might do big and impressive things, but from God's point of view, it's worthless, because He didn't need the thing. He wanted your heart. That's the whole point. right? Long after this world has gone away, what will last is God's Word. What it says, and what reflects it in truth. So you have an excellent example of this problem. I'm going to go one more time outside the book to Corinthians, this time back to 1 Corinthians again, because this is the second half of a two-part lesson. And we have an excellent example of this problem, that that is to say of a church that thinks that ministry is an honor to self and everybody else should pay homage to the minister. We have an excellent example of that in Corinth. God, God loved Corinth. I am so happy that Corinth existed because they are us, you know, on steroids, which is perfect because anytime we need to see ourselves honestly, just go read the, the letters that Paul wrote to Corinth and you can just see it. And Corinth had this, this problem, among many, actually, in which they were lording over one another. And there is a point in Paul's letter where he mocks them. I love it when Paul mocks people, because he's so good at it. And he mocks the Corinthians in their self-importance. And he does it by reminding the Corinthians of how the apostles themselves approached ministry when they were with the Corinthians. And Paul says this. He says in 1 Corinthians four seven, speaking to the church in Corinth, he says, Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things until now. Even until now, he says. So I love that little piece, because it puts in perspective how God speaks to us, through Paul, on the attitude of haughtiness in ministry. He asks the Corinthians, Okay, so who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? I love that line. You know, the church was so prideful in that day, they thought they knew so much about Christ. Why did they think they were so superior in their knowledge of Jesus and spiritual things and all the rest. Well, because they had had men like Paul and Barnabas and Peter come to that church, to that city, and teach them at various times in the past. They were very privileged in that respect. What did it do? It turned them into a group of people who thought they had it all made already. That they were spiritually mature, spiritually uh, uh, superior to anyone else, ironically. And yet, Paul says, you know, nothing you got came by itself. Somebody had to teach you and if someone had to teach you and correct you and fo- show you how to follow the truth and how to do everything that you're supposed to do, then whatever you have now, it came from someone else who had it before you, which would mean they got it more than you do. Right? Can you know more than your teacher? No. In other words, if you're dependent on your teacher for learning, you can't know more than they know. The best you could do is equal them. And that's Paul's point to this church. The someones that taught them were none other than the apostles themselves. And that honored them, yes, to receive it. Now they had turned that around and they had become self-honoring by telling themselves, look how much we've accomplished. You talk about a short memory. That's what they had. So Paul asks them to consider that for a moment. And then he says, I want you to remember what we did. Did the apostles roll up in a Mercedes chariot? Did, Did Barnabas demand the Caesar suite at the Corinthian Hyatt? Right? I mean, did, did Peter require people to carry him on his shoulders and lavish him with comfort and praise while he was there? Is that the style of ministry that they saw come from the apostles, who they learned from? No. Paul says, we were the least among men. We were fools for Christ. We had no honor. We've been exhibited, by God that is, as spectacles before men and angels. At times, now think about this, you, you have a lot of respect for Paul, right? You think about all the people in ministry that you might want to see when you get to heaven. And I'm sure there's a list that would have all the big names on it, right? One of the first guys I want to find is Paul. I'm sure I'll have to wait in line. Because this guy is something else. Is he really as good as he sounds like he was? How did he get there? I'd love to know his story better than I have it in Scripture. And yet, here's the thing I got to remember. Can you imagine Paul, knowing him now, knowing Peter, knowing Barnabas, knowing what these guys did, how important they were? Can you imagine that they were hungry? They were thirsty at times. They were not clothed. They were roughly treated. They were homeless. Do you understand the church, somehow, these guys, though they had support, there were apparently times in their walk with Christ where the church forgot them. Or at least something happened. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Don't forget that when you look at the church today. There are people today that when we get to heaven you know, the greatest will be the least, the least will be the greatest, there'll be some people that you will see God's honor bestowed on them for who they were in Christ, and yet here, we reviled them. Why? Because they didn't do what we wanted. They didn't say what we wanted, they didn't do what they wanted, they didn't give us what we want, we didn't like them for some reason. Shame on us when that day comes. And what we're hearing is, the ones who lower themselves and serve others sacrificially are the ones we ought to be lifting up. In short, Paul says they became the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. And why? Because that's ministry. Welcome to ministry. That's ministry right there, friends. Serving the weak, serving the immature, at times serving the unlovable, and doing it without thanks. Well, that is, without the thanks of men. That was the lesson he wanted these guys to remember. That's what we learn, more or less, in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus was trying to take that haughty attitude, flip it around, and show these guys what real ministry was like. And he was doing it kind of the way a parent does it with a child who can't appreciate what they have. Parents, if you've got a child that doesn't appreciate what they have, what do you do? Make them earn it. Take it away. Make it something where they can begin to appreciate what they've had and and not take it for granted, right? Jesus said, You think you're important? Let's put you on the ground floor and see if you're willing to work your way up. And he had them serve. So... What did they do with that service? What did they do with that lesson? I told you earlier, they didn't learn it. I told you earlier, they didn't just not learn it. They resented it. How do I know that? Well, I'm going to show you. But I'm telling you now, they completely resented it. And in my own words, this is what Jesus thought after he saw what that lesson did in their heart. I think Jesus said, there's an easy way to learn this lesson. And there's a hard way to learn this lesson. So boys, we're going to do this the hard way. Get in the boat. Verse 24. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, He came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. This is the intrigue for the night. Let's get into it. Matthew gives us a rather brief description of the disciples' experience in the boat. He says they were already a long distance from the land when the incident took place. Now remember my maps, right? Having seen the maps, we know where they left, we know where they went, so we know they could not have been that far from land, which then tells us that Matthew is speaking here from the perspective of those who were in the boat. The men who were in the boat felt like they were miles offshore, like they had rowed for a long time. And the reason is because of what was going on at the time. Mark tells us that the disciples were straining at the oars against a wind that had been blowing up that night from the opposite direction, forcing them to row into a headwind. In fact, they have gone so slowly into that headwind that Mark tells us it is now the fourth watch of the night, and that is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which means these guys should have made that journey I showed you on the map in about two hours, more or less. I mean, it's not that far. They have now been going for better than six, maybe even seven hours of rowing for that short distance. And furthermore, they're doing this at night on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is hundreds of feet below sea level. And as a result, the air is dense, it's hazy. In fact, uh, even in broad daylight, those of us who have been there will testify to this, even in broad daylight, you can sometimes not see across this body of water that's only six or seven miles wide at some points. Because the haze is so thick. And then at night, it's like sailing in fog. You can't see lights on the shore. You can't see anything in that kind of circumstance. Now add to that, they're alone without Jesus. They have a storm brewing around them, a wind, waves being ripped up, whipped up by the wind. And out of that foggy darkness, men exhausted after seven hours of rowing, thinking they're in the middle of nowhere, just hoping they can row their way into some shore somewhere. Out of the darkness... Jesus appears walking on the stormy water. He could not have made a more dramatic entrance. And I know there's just a ton of jokes on walking on water. We could do... Because this is such a major moment in the Gospels. We talk about Jesus doing about five or six things. This is one of them. Walking on the water. But I think we miss the point when we focus on that. They see this apparition coming out of nowhere on the water and they say it must be a ghost. That's actually pretty sensible. Because... We know that flesh and blood can't walk on water. So, what can hover over water? It must be a, a, a ghost, some kind of spirit being. Right? So, they think it's a ghost. This just frightens them all the more. And as Jesus gets closer to them, eventually they recognize him, and yet they aren't comforted by that fact. Mark tells us in his gospel they are terrified at the sight of Jesus walking on water. But then, Mark says something else, critically important to understanding what's going on here and Jesus' purpose. Let me read you one verse out of Mark. Mark 6.48. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Mark says the men were straining at the oars, the wind was against them, it was late, and then Jesus comes into view, but he's not walking toward the boat. He's walking by the boat. He's, what's he trying to accomplish? Why is he going to walk by the boat? He set these guys up. He set them up. He put them on the water at night together in a tough situation. They've been going nowhere on their own. They just need someone to help them. Jesus appears, now they're afraid of him, because obviously what he's doing is stunning, it's supernatural, it's overwhelming, it's unexpected, and they notice, wait a minute guys, that's Jesus, and then someone else says, he's not stopping. (laughs) And they cry out to him, Mark says, so does John, Uh, I'm sorry, so does uh, yeah, John. They cry out to him, I think it's partly out of fear, and partly out of desperation, I mean, it's almost like, you know, Not sure which one you want. You know, it's like, we need help, but that's a ghost. But we need the help. But what are we going to do? So they're kind of in this in between moment, and they cry out to him. They're in trouble. They, They need help. If only Jesus would have pity on them in their time of need. If only he would help them in their moment of burden. We've been here before? Jesus didn't have time for their problem, though. He's just cruising on the waves on the way to Capernaum. He's got his own, you know, guys, sorry, I'll see you there. Passing by, And in response to their fear, when they cry out to him, what does he do? He turns aside, he comes to their aid, and it's obvious from the circumstances and the geography that Jesus has put them in this storm to teach them a lesson. Not for transportation. I mean, this is all connected to the prior lesson. In fact, and this is where I show you that I'm right. Look what Mark tells us about that moment as he finishes the account. Mark 6:50. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke with them and he said to them, "Take courage; it is I; do not be afraid." Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. And then Mark says this: "For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened." What Mark's footnote tells us is the whole reason this moment took place. The whole reason for this episode. In verse 52, he says, For, which is to say, as a result of, or because of. That is to say, Jesus brought about these events because the disciples had not gained insight from the incident of the loaves. And why didn't they get the message? Because Mark says they had their hearts hard. What does hard heart mean? Well, in simple terms, it's stubbornness. But it's in a particular sense. It's a refusal to repent from sin when it's been brought to your attention and you know you did the wrong thing or let's say you know you're in the wrong state of heart or the st- wrong place the wrong, the wrong attitude there's something that you know is not right and it's been brought to your attention but you double down on what you want it's, it's this stubborn it's like what two year olds do don't touch that you ever had that moment <laughs> the child's about to do this and you say don't touch that and they go like this and they go <laughs> that's hard heart I mean, in a child's version, that's a hard heart. So in this case, this group of men said to Jesus, Send those crowd, that crowd away. It's kind of trouble. We don't want to mess with them. Get them out of here. Jesus. Jesus said, Tell you what we're going to do instead, guys. You're going to be their waiters. Start walking up and down the hill. And He demanded they feed the crowd. Now, Jesus gave the food, but these guys had to trek up and down that hillside for at least a few hours, And now what we learn is they did it feeling quite unappreciated. Perhaps they thought that work was beneath them. Let's be honest. Have have we not felt that sometimes in church? You know, taking care of babies or cleaning toilets or sweeping floors is hardly going to get you the praise of the elder board, much less of anyone else in the body. But you know what happens to a church when you don't do those things? (laughs) You don't want to be in the body, in that church, when that happens, right? I mean, it's just basic work. It has to be done. It's a part of service. And they thought either that was beneath them, or they resented the way they were made by Jesus to beg for the leftovers afterward. I mean, the whole thing is designed to humiliate them from front to back. Humiliate their pride. What Jesus wanted them to understand is, service is not about status. Service is not about status. It's supposed to show them that that greatness in ministry, true honor in ministry, is found in serving others, not in being served. They don't get the message, they get their feelings hurt, And so after the feeding, as I said earlier, Jesus says to himself, get in the boat. We're going to do this the hard way. So he puts those privileged ministers in a difficult position in which their needs became the issue. He traps them in water by themselves, weary, lost, scared at night. They are like lost sheep bleeding for a shepherd in the middle of the dark. And now they become the burden. And then he just turns the pressure up a little bit, has a wind blow, has some waves going crazy in front of them. And by that point, he starts walking by on the water and the point's obvious. I'm the one with power. I'm the one with privilege. I'm the one with prestige. I'm the one with glory. I'm the one who can walk on water. You're stuck in a boat. You don't need me. I don't need you. Or you need me. I don't need you. In fact, Jesus doesn't even need a boat. He doesn't need anything. That's the obvious point that's being made to them in that moment. And so now the sandal is on the other foot. These guys are the ones who need the help. They're the ones crying out. They're the ones asking for rescue. I find it so interesting that they had hard hearts toward others in need. But as soon as that need was their own, well, they're glad to receive help. And in fact, they expect it. (laughs) That's how we all are. That's why it said he intended to pass by. Look, he was not going to go to the shore. He knew that. This was a show. This was Jesus saying to them, Oh, you want me? Oh, you need help? You need my help? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I guess I can help. No, he didn't do that. He was more gracious than that. I would have done that. (laughs) I would have gone all the way to Capernaum, I think, at that point. (laughs) Look, if a minister shows that kind of unloving, hard-hearted attitude toward a flock in need, it's the opposite of ministry. It's the opposite. It's incompatible with the kingdom program. Now, Jesus had concern for them, which is why he stopped. But Jesus wanted them to remember... That everyone has needs. That ministry is about serving needs, but everyone has needs. And so we all sin. That means we all need Christ's forgiveness. And once in a while, we'll need each other's. And we all have weaknesses, which is why we all need Christ's strength. And we all benefit from an opportunity to serve, which is why we need everybody else's gifts and burdens mixed together. It's it's just that simple. And so he creates this trial. And I will tell you, I think Jesus does this more than just once. I think it's very common in Christ's way of working with us to create trials in our lives specifically so that it makes opportunity for ministry. Don't look past your need in some crisis or the just the day-to-day, by-and-by struggle. Don't look past that. That's ministry opportunity for somebody. Now yes, it's for you too, you'll grow in that moment, but if you suffer in quiet, if you never come to church or tell anybody about it, you rob somebody else from their opportunity to minister to you. You didn't just lack getting blessed, they lacked getting blessed. Don't I mean that's where transparency works well in the body. Not when we use it as an excuse to tell things to people we shouldn't, but when it works to our advantage by confessing our own needs to others. That's when transparency has a powerful effect in the body of Christ. And speaking of which, there is one more disciple in particular that needed to appreciate this lesson, and for some reason he hadn't quite got it yet. So we have that next passage to finish with. Verse 27. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and he said to him, you have little faith, why did you doubt? When he got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Now anyone who has listened to my teaching for any length of time, you'll know that Peter is my favorite apostle. And in some ways, he's my hero in in the New Testament because I think I'm a lot like Peter and not in a good way because Peter is famous for being the apostle known for shooting first and asking questions later or as some would say, ready, fire, aim. He just had that sort of thing about him, right? That's kind of his style of ministry. And among Peter's many notable moments in the Gospels, this is one of my favorites. But it's also one of the most perplexing to me, because I struggle a little bit to understand what was going on in Peter's mind when he made this suggestion. He sees, he sees Jesus on the water. He hears Jesus say, Take courage, it is, it is I. And in Greek, the, the, the way Jesus spoke could actually be translated, I am. Which clearly kind of points us back to Exodus again. But anyway, Peter and the rest of the disciples recognized Jesus. And they thought he was a ghost at first. Now they're seeing maybe he's not a ghost, but now they're not so sure what to believe. And so to verify that they are truly seeing a flesh and blood Jesus and not some ghostly imitator of Jesus, Peter contrives this little test. He tells them, command me to go walk on the water. Now, I love to think, what were the other disciples thinking at about that point? I'm guessing they were saying, oh, oh that's a good idea, Peter. You should do that. <laughs> you do that, Peter. And I... And at first, I can kind of get why he thinks this is a good idea, right? Because he's assuming that if, uh, if he couldn't walk on the water, for example, then it would reveal that that apparition is only a ghost who's just trying to fool them, right? Because if, if he can't, then it couldn't be Jesus doing it, or so he thought. And I don't think he intended to just leap off the boat to test it. I'm sure he was a little more cautious than that, right? He's kind of, you know, can I stand or not? And he gets his foot out there, his toe is there. It gets a little... If he didn't get any support... He would get back in the boat and he'd say, you almost got me there. But he knew, if he felt something, he just kind of steps out. Next thing you know, he's walking on water. This is where I think it went wrong for him. I don't think he thought about step two. I think he said, tell me I can walk on water. He gets out there and he's like, okay, I'm walking on water. I'm really doing it. Now what? I don't know where to go. I don't know. What do you do after that? What, is he just going to walk around for a while? He doesn't know what to do. Peter was always doing this, right? He runs to the tomb. Oh, but I don't want to go in. He, he was, you know, Lord, we will follow you anywhere. You know, there's all of this kind of gusto. And then later he's like, ooh, why did I say that? I think that was his situation here. He sees the wind, which means there's rough seas, right? And I think the main thing he noticed is, I'm no more in a boat. I'm no longer in the boat. The boat's back there. I'm out here. And this is where it gets injured. It's like a dog chasing a car. If it ever catches it, they don't know what to do with it. And Peter's on the water and He's stuck. And then it gets really interesting. And I love this detail, and I often think it's overlooked. Maybe the most fascinating part of the account. He begins to slowly sink in the water. <laughs> I love this. And we hear the whole rest of it. Right, Jesus rescues him up, takes his hand, chastises him for having little faith, brings him back in the boat. All right, Now, if you don't read it carefully, here's what you assume. And I guarantee you've heard somebody say this when they've talked about this. You, you assume this, that Peter's rising and falling in the water is sort of like a thermometer of his faith. Right? He had faith, then he starts to lose it, he starts to slip, you know. and then Jesus touches him and gets it back up. That's what we start to think, right? As if his, his ability to walk on water was a direct reflection of the degree of his faith in Jesus. Okay? and that's an easy conclusion to draw, but it's only easy if you don't think about this very much. Because if you think about it, that doesn't work anymore. First of all, how much faith did Peter have in the situation in the beginning? Where was his starting point in faith? I don't think you're Jesus. I think you're a ghost. Make me get on the water and see if it's true. That's not a starting point of faith. That's a starting point of doubt. And he started walking on the water. So whatever little equation we want to work with now about why he fell or didn't fall, you can't chalk it up merely to the level of faith he had because you started with zero. Or close to zero. Alright? Then ask yourself this question. When Peter began to sink, was he any less walking on water? Was he any less walking on water when the water was at his calves or at his knees? <laughs> walking on water, friends, is a binary state. You are either doing it or you are not doing it, right? As Yoda would say do or do not do, there is no try, right? <laughs> if he can walk at all, he's walking on water. If he's not walking on water, what happens to him? Poof! End of Peter, done. He's somewhere under the water, right? So when you see him outside the boat, walking, he's walking the whole time. He never stops walking on water. He's never swimming. Okay? And the, the other thing I want to add here before we kind of put all this together, remember it was, it was Peter who proposed the extra extravehicular excursion here. Jesus didn't suggest it, he did. Had Peter said nothing, I would propose to you that Jesus would simply have gotten in the boat. In fact, the other gospel writers don't even say anything about Peter at all. They skip this, because for them, they just go straight to Jesus getting back in the boat. It was only Matthew who mentions this. So I think Peter goes off script, does his own thing. Jesus incorporates it into the lesson. He says, oh, I can use this. This is good. Come on out here, Peter. Let's see how this goes. And then, remember back on the mountainside, Jesus made the disciples feed the crowd by distributing baskets of food in small groups, right? So that method required that the disciples march back and forth and back and forth. Remember that? And I told you back then that that was so that the picture could be complete, that Jesus is the supply. It wasn't just the problem of how are we going to feed all these people, and then they had the idea, and then Jesus said, okay, guys, go do it. Check in with me when it's over. No, that's not ministry. Jesus gives us the idea, he gives us the means, and he sustains it all the way through. There's no moment in there where you step back and say, I got it from here, Jesus. Though we like to do that, that's not how ministry works. So, in this set of circumstances, you have Peter, who walks out on the water, once he gains the ability, he's got his proof, right? Jesus is Jesus. He's got his answer. I'm walking on water. I guess we know now that this is truly Jesus. And then he starts walking a step or two, and he forgets where his supply is from. And he thinks, guys, check this out. I can walk on water now. I mean, that's me. But he said he, he's thinking something like that. And as he sees the water whipping up, he says something to himself like, well, now what? Where am I going? What am I, what am I doing out here? What's the point of all this? Now what? It's, it's tantamount to Peter failing to return to Jesus with his empty basket. It was him thinking, I got it from here. Now he's suddenly aware that it's not something he should be doing. And he starts to sink. This is where I think Jesus gets involved. As Peter's faith waned, his power to walk on water was not waning. Jesus was just letting him feel a little bit more vulnerability, a little bit more need, a little bit more dependence, so that it would kind of wake him up that you're not out here on your own. This isn't about you. And as he sinks a little bit, he's like, "Ah." and Jesus is like, I'm here. You want my help or not? He's on the water. He's not sinking. Jesus is still letting him walk on water. He's just making a point. He lets him drop slowly so that he could experience the lesson that had been the point all along to the whole boat of men, which is, my flock will always be in need of your care. You will always be in need of my care. If you abide in me, we can do work together. John fifteen five. I am the vine. You are the branches. branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the lesson. So here's what we've learned as we wrap up. Ministry is about being a pipe, a channel, in which we deliver spiritual supply from Christ to somebody else. And that service will center on reaching people in need at times when they need us. And we serve each other in that way. We gain honor when we render service. And as Paul said, we gain honor when someone renders service to us. And today you see a corollary to this, and kind of the hard way to learn it, that is, if you want to learn this lesson the easy way, the way Jesus wanted them to learn it on the mountain, you just go out, engage in the work, serving others to, to, to minister to them as Christ might call you. As you do that, you know what you learn? You learn things like humility. You learn self-sacrifice. You will learn persistence. You'll learn patience with other people. Most of all, you'll learn dependence on Jesus. If you want those lessons, start serving people in their time of need, and watch what Christ does through your heart as you do that service. That's the easy way. If you don't want to do that, there is the hard way, and the Lord loves us so much that He will not fail to let us learn this lesson one way or the other. And so, if we aren't willing to serve others and learn what that gives us, He will then put us in the place of need. We will become the one who needs help. And in that sense, we cry out to Him. He comes to our aid through somebody else. And in that moment, we start to realize what service and what hearts of service look like. Only it's modeled to us instead of through us. Now, I will tell you, having been on both sides of that at various times in my life, the first one is better. It's easier. It's nicer. But Jesus will kind of give you a little kickstart if you're not willing to take on that effort on your own. And he will let you sink a little at times to remind you that you'll never be able to say to Jesus, we got it from here. And that's what he'll do for all of us because he loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for hearts of service when we need them. I thank you, Father, that you have called us to serve. And I ask, Father, you give us a heart that wants to do it. But service, Father, isn't just busyness, and we know that. It's not just activity for activity's sake, Father. It is an answer to a call. And if we're sitting here tonight, Father, and we don't know that call in our own particular case, we're not sure where the service would take us and what you'd ask of us, then that's the first step, Father. We put that in front of you and ask, Lord, that you would answer that question in each heart. Where, Father? How? Why? And just as you showed the apostles the plan and you revealed it to them in stages as they obey, we'll do the same, Father. Just show us step one and we'll be content with that and we'll take that step. And for some of us, Father, I know that's probably something we're already engaged in doing. And as we do it, I pray, Father, you're encouraging our hearts to do more. And for all the rest of us who are still waiting, still looking, still wondering, we know, Lord, that you don't want us waiting and looking and wondering forever. So give us the direction. Give us the plan. And in all we do, Father, don't let us get a haughtiness, a a pridefulness about us, a self-satisfaction in our heart that says, this is about us. Or that we can do it without you. For the moment that happens, Father, I know that ministry ends. And that's not what we want. We thank you for a church, Father, that cares about these things and for a group that wants to live according to them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.